If I decided to get out of the finance business and I wanted to go open a sandwich shop, my guess is the majority of people that I've done business with over the last 20 years would come buy their sandwiches from me, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you've, yeah. you've taken that period of time. It is to get to know them and to care about them and to pay attention to them and to understand above and beyond of just, hey, we're doing a deal together about what keeps you up at night. And mm. oftentimes what keeps you up at night is your wife and your kids and your business and whether your kid made the football team or not and that kind of a thing. And just being a good kind of genuine person, I think, serves you well mm. above and beyond your business. Mm. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Jeremy B. Hill. Jeremy is the founder and managing partner of JB Capital, a credit-focused alternative asset manager. He has more than 20 years' experience in investment banking, capital markets, and real estate, and is recognized expert in private debt. Welcome to our show. Thanks, Shahid. How are you? Doing great, my friend. Doing great. Is there a story of how you got into it? Was this a childhood dream that you wanted to get into this field? I don't know if it was a childhood dream necessarily. Yes. No. I yeah. think I have become a huge believer of we plan and God laughs. Yes. I mean, we all have some idea of uh, how life is going to be. And it, it, it's sometimes it's some facsimile of that. Sometimes it's close to that. Yeah. And sometimes it's the complete opposite. So. Uh, mm -hmm. No, I did not dream of doing what it is that I'm doing. I thought I was going to be um, a doctor or oh. normal. Pr yeah. And yeah. You know, the reality is I had no desire to be a doctor. I loved math and science and loved watching Jacques Cousteau as a kid and all that kind of stuff. I really liked that, but I didn't want to be a doctor. I liked people, but I liked the things about being. A doctor. I liked the respect in the community. I liked being successful. I liked having nice stuff. I liked having all the things yeah. that, is that came with being a doctor, but I don't know if I want to show up and be a doctor. So yeah. it's funny just how your life begins to morph as you go through university and education and trials and life and marriage and business, how things evolve. No, I started my business in 2002 by accident and it it's just turned out to be this beautiful, happy accident. And it's been wonderful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's one of the best accidents, right? For you and your wife. It is. Yeah. Yeah. In your career in private debt, what's the most significant change you have witnessed in the industry and how has it shaped your approach to managing alternative assets? That's a great question. I think um, for me now, I've been doing this 20 years, but there's plenty of guys that is that are smarter and richer and better looking than I am that may have a, <laughs> that may have a different perspective. But the big thing I think it is for me changed as we started witnessing what's been known now as GFC, this great financial crisis in 2008. So coming out of that world, like I had always been doing private debt, which is basically non-bank financing, non-traditional financing. I had always been doing that since up to 23 years now. But going into that GFC, going into that bank crisis, what ended up happening is coming into 2008, the United States, we had about 11,500 thrifts, about basically 11,500 banks. Coming from 2008 to 2010, that 11,500 went to 6,500. It was basically cut in half. 
And then oh. from 2010 to 2015, we went from 6,500 to 5,500. 15 to 20, we went from 5,500 to 4,500. And now we're sitting at about 3,800. And so mm. you've seen this kind of not only consolidation effort, but atrophy of traditional financing and traditional banking happening over this longer period of time. And so at the time that we had 11,000 banks in the country, we had about 1,000 or 1,500 alternative sources of capital, private equity, private debt, venture capital, venture debt, this kind of a thing. That number is now almost 10,000. So it's almost like the banks and the private capital markets have completely flipped places. They've hmm. just flip-flopped. And so I think what it is that we have historically seen and that we're going to continue to see is what we've all talked about as alternative finance or alternative lending. In the next year or so, it's just going to be lending. It's not going to be alternative. It's just going to be lending. And traditional hmm. banks have a smaller and smaller part of that. So I think our doing this for a long time has set us up perfectly, unconsciously, but perfectly for what this next kind of 20 years of run in private capital is going to be. So super excited about that. Hmm. So for the private aspect of it, these are private firms and individuals that put up their money for it to be utilized, correct? So if you think about the, the private capital markets, so private capital can be of varying different structures, right? It could be everything from private credit, which is basically loaning money, right? We're like a private uh -huh. version of commercial bank. Yeah. There's private equity to where it is that everything from small investors to larger investors, to pension funds, to sovereign wealth funds, to a number of different things will actually pool their money and then they mm -hmm. will act as you know larger equity investors into varying different sizes and shapes of companies and that kind of a thing. But the nomenclature behind the private aspect of it is that it's not typically publicly regulated or publicly funded by state and local government and that kind of thing. So it, this private capital marketplace, I think, is really moving away or moving ahead in things it is that are not public markets like IPOs and publicly traded equity markets and not traditional banks. So if we think about everything that's not that, that would be the private marketplace. So this could be mm. you and your, brother and your neighbors and your cousins and your family syndicating everybody, putting in money and making an investment in an apartment building or a house or a strip mall or, or loaning money to a company, any of that kind of atypical or a traditional type of financing would be deemed as kind of private capital. So Jeremy, you mentioned that it's going to be just lending, for example. How are how will the actual rates look like compared to the banks? Because the banks were definitely more competitive, right? Yeah. It's when you look at the reason why banks charge, you know, lower rates, right? Whatever mm -hmm. that is, right? Rates vary depending mm -hmm. on what's going on in the market and the economy. Mm -hmm. But I'm loaning money in 13, 14, 15% type interest rates, whereas mm. banks are loaning money in four, five, 6% interest rates, 7% mm. interest rates. The difference there is not only credit risk and exposure and guarantee and that kind of a thing. And so the minute it is that you begin to look at private capital, they're maybe willing to reach a little bit more. They're willing to maybe structure a deal a little bit better that may not have a full personal guarantee or that may not have- Easier to get funding. Yeah, man. It's hmm. the reality is that the banking business, the traditional way it is of financing something, whether it's buying a house or buying a car or investing in something, right? Like it's 
it 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 used to be the world to where it is that there was some gray, right? Like the, it wasn't so mm. definitively black and white about you're approved or you're not approved or you qualify or you don't qualify. There was maybe ways it is to massage things so you could still get the deal done, right? That's pretty much gone away in traditional banking, right? If you and I two wise guys bank, right? If we have 20 checkboxes, it is that we need to sign off on before we can make a loan. If somebody's got 19 and not 20, it's, hey, should, sorry, buddy, we can't do it. Thanks. See you later. There yeah. is no kind of fudging trying to see if they can make it work. And so mm. that side of things has really what's given way it is to this kind of growth in private capital. But for those businesses, it is that do check all 20 boxes and you're willing to give up your kid and your firstborn child and your dog and your house <laughs> and everything else, right? Like you, get, you do yeah. get cheaper money, right? But it's, it comes with more hooks for sure. Mm -hmm. So probably post-COVID, they're more popular as well, the private side. Yeah, it, it's post-GFC. I think post kind of 2010, this private capital marketplace, whether mm. it's private equity or private debt has grown significantly. COVID was a whole different ball of wax, right? And I think for us, the big learning it is that came out of COVID, I think was two things is number one, you figure out a way to do more with less is that mm -hmm. I think we were all intoxicated and a little bit fat and gluttonous on how it is that we spend money, right? If there was mm -hmm. how many days a week were you going out to lunch or going out to dinner? Or, hey, there's a meeting it is that I need to be to. So I'm going to fly to LA for a day to go jump in an Uber, to stay in a hotel, to go out to dinner, to do all this over something that could have been done over Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so I, yeah. there's yeah. some of that. I think the other thing it is that came and we're seeing some correction. I don't know how much will happen, but is where you work and where you live no longer have to be the same place. And so the majority mm. of decisions it is that people have made historically about I live here is because my job is 20 minutes away or 30 minutes away and my kids go to school over here and this has happened over here. So this is where I live. Yeah. Well, where you want to live. The same. Yeah. It's not mm. the same. And so you can now take into, I think it's become more readily acceptable that where do you want to live and how do you want to live and what do you want to do with that? I can work for anybody. I can work anywhere, mm -hmm. whether it is Pretty that I'm working cool. I'm in like yeah. my business hasn't changed it at all. In fact, it's grown. My wife and I just moved our family from the Seattle area uh, to Paradise Valley, Arizona. None of my clients oh. care. Nobody no. cares. Doesn't they shouldn't. Matter. Yeah. Some of them no. don't know. But from a family side on how it is that we like to live and what it is that we like our lives to be, it's sunnier here. It's blue skies yeah. and trees and the people Beautiful. are not it's a completely different <laughs> way. So why did we postpone this degree of kind of happiness for how it is that your family wanted hmm. to live based upon this is where i work and this is where my kids go to school so i think that's been great kind of entrepreneurial life-changing stuff it is it's been really cool yeah. for a lot of people us included so that's probably why you're so nice now right that you moved there yeah well, last year <laughs> i was a total happy yeah. so you've been it, in, it makes you happier man yeah, of course. Definitely. Weather is everything. Sun is everything. It just brightens up your day, literally. But you've been in, involved in, in raising capital for numerous growth companies. Can you share a particular challenging instant where you had to find an innovative solution for a complex financial situation? Yeah, honestly, all of them. The, wow. the reality is, so the quick history on our businesses, when we started this thing in 2002, 
we were serving as basically investment bankers and advisors. So we were a hired mm. gun to go solve problems. And most of those problems had something to do with something to do with something to do with money, right? Like most of these guys were trying to either get their next version set up mm-hmm. of their product market. They, they needed five or eight or $10 million for something. The bank cut, couldn't get them there. They didn't want to dilute and go out and raise private equity. And they were just trying to figure out a way to turn all the dials of the Rubik's Cube to make this thing go. And so we got really good at solving those problems for these companies. And so we were doing kind of five to $20 million raises. And over that 17 or 18 years before we started managing our own money, we did a billion dollars in deals. It was a super cool business. I loved it. Mm. Mm. But the nature it is for all of these companies and why it is that they needed something unique or why they needed a special structure is because they didn't fit. Like we were talking about those banks. They didn't fit into the Mm. little, that all 20 boxes checked, right? There would be somebody it is that had a blemish on their credit history. They had gone bankrupt or their last company had failed, or we have a big company right now. It is that we're going to finance personally. It's about 50 million, but the, the banks are, have put them in special credits because the partners are suing each other and fighting each other. Oh, they're spending a couple of million dollars a year. I hate you. You hate me. You go away. I go away. They're just clashing. The business itself is fine, is growing, is profitable, but the bank has put them in special credits and said, you guys go away until you get your shit together. And so now bank wants out of a deal for a performing company because the two partners are suing like, there is that's where always, you go in. And that's where we go in. That's right. So mm-hmm. there is always something unique that takes a differentiated approach. It is to solving whatever that problem is. Because if it was easy, then your knucklehead banker would do the deal at 5%. There's, mm. These are the nuances as in all sorts of businesses it is that require something different than what traditional capital can do. And that's why this market has grown. Because Think Mm. about your business, my business, your house, my house, your wife, my wife, like none of it is normal. And traditional banking and traditional financing want something simple. They don't want to have to think. They don't want to have to work. They don't want to have to try too hard. And if you can solve all those things, then you get 5% capital. If you have Mm. an ugly redheaded bastard stepchild that needs something different, now you're stuck talking to me and you're going to pay 13 or 14 or 15%. You're going to pay more. But so. All right. Your ability to build relationships with these various partners, the commercial banks, advisory firms, it's quite incredible to build that level of relationships. How do you maintain and leverage these networks to drive success for your clients? I think the reality is that most people genuinely want somebody that's honest, that they can trust what it is that they're doing and what they're working. That shouldn't be such a uh, an outlier. I think one of the things it is that we've done over time is that if I don't know, I, I just tell you, I don't know. Good. So many people are afraid to say it is that I don't know the answer, right? Or, right? And so I think a big part of what it is that we've done over time is really is just be short, concise, uh, truthful, consistent, right? Just the normal things it is that you would do, whether it's a business relationship or a friendship is just be mm-hmm. genuinely interested in doing right by people. And mm-hmm. there is that thing of continuing to do that over time that will do nothing but serve you well and, and develop a good reputation. I think that we've done a, we've done a good job of that. So doing a good job of that, do you find that your ability to build 
further relationships has amplified? Yeah, of course, because then you have advocates and supporters in the world, right? You have people that is that had a great engagement interaction with you, regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether you did business together or not. We'd said for years and years that tomorrow, if I decided to get out of the finance business um, and I wanted to go open a sandwich shop, my guess is the majority of people it is that I've done business with over the last 20 years would come buy their sandwiches from me, right? Because yeah. <laughs> right? You know, because you, you've, yeah. you've taken that period of time it is to get to know them and to care about them and to pay attention to them and to understand above and beyond of just, hey, we're doing a deal together about what keeps you up at night. And mm. oftentimes what keeps you up at night is your wife and your kids and your business and whether your kid made the football team or not and that kind of a thing. And just just being a good kind of genuine person, I think, serves you well mm. above, beyond, above and beyond your business. Mm. Authentic, genuine. So that's a recommendation you would share with someone who's getting into this business? Or getting into any business. The, yeah. you know, the best things it is that I heard, there was, a, there was a guy named John Maxwell that writes a lot of leadership books and uh, I heard him say one time it is, uh, you'll be a second class. You'll be a second class version of somebody else at best. So mm. you can be a first class you, right? So why would I try to imitate or be some version of somebody else when at the best I'm ever going to be as a second class version of them, but I can be a first class version of Jeremy. So mm. figuring out a way to be authentic is such a rarity these case because either people are, are trying to be something it is that they're not because that they think that's more acceptable mm -hmm. or um, they're genuinely just not comfortable or confident in who it is that they are and what it is that they bring to the table. And so that degree of authenticity it is comes with a filter because you're afraid to be naked. You're afraid to be who it is that you are. Mm -hmm. Those and honestly, if you've been around long enough, if you've been doing deals, if you've been in business, if you've been around long enough, when somebody's full of shit, yeah. they're like, it's just, you yeah. sense it. It's easy. It's, you've got that little Yoda sense or some kind of oh, thing. Intuition. It is totally. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah. And, but that degree of really, truly being authentic, it, it's easy, but it's difficult, right? It's easy to do because yeah. you're you. It's difficult yeah. because you have to accept that. You're you, and I'm not you, and you're yeah. not me. It's okay, yeah. right? That's okay. It just takes a Get lot. You're comfortable with it. Totally. Yeah. It's, I finally, after years and years of trying to not be something that, that I wasn't, but trying to be more than what I was and realizing that I'm on that journey, but I'm not there yet, I finally, five, six, seven years ago it is, realized it is that I really don't care about impressing other people. You're going to like me or you're not. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you're going to like how it is that I do business and how it is that we structure things and how, how it is that I am at business. I've got six, seven meetings today, how I'm at business and how I am at dinner with my wife and how I am with my kids and how I am on the weekend is the exact same thing. I, yeah. if I whiskey at lunch and I'm with a client, I'm going to drink a fucking whiskey at lunch. Yes. If you don't like yeah. it, cool. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter. You can have an iced tea yeah. and do whatever the heck it is that you want. <laughs> Nope. Jeremy, that's that. I had a big problem with that before. It was a yeah. huge problem. Um, I felt like my every step, my every move, my every decision, my likes, dislikes were just based on uh, the perception of others. Yeah. And and if and, uh, now that I look back, it just felt like I was in in a very 
strong metal-based box where I, I wasn't able to do anything. When you're in it, you don't realize it. It's just when oh. you realize it, when you come out and you look back and you say, wow, that was such a waste of time. It, my wife yeah. said something years ago that was awesome is she used mm -hmm. to get headaches a lot. And she had gotten in a car accident and just had little tweaks and stuff like that. And we ended up going to a doctor and they figured out a way to make those little tweaks go away in the nerves in her neck. And she came to me and she's, I didn't know I had a headache until the pain stopped. Mm. And it was one of those things that you get used to and accustomed to living yeah. in a certain way that's uncomfortable, but yes. uncomfortable becomes normal over time. And then when that pain yeah. goes away, you're like, oh, wait, this is what I'm supposed to feel like? <laughs> yeah. What? This is amazing. And yeah. Yeah. I think you get to that point to where it is that you said, I'm living in this box and I don't really realize I'm living in this box until I get out of this box. And you're like, yeah. wow, it's nice out here. Huh. Right? It's so, amazing. Freedom feels good. It is. It's like going from yeah. Seattle to Paradise Valley. You're like, that's so <laughs> here. That's true. At least we, at least we yeah. have one more nice person in the world, right? So that's right. You're welcome. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> oh, Jeremy, it was, it was great meeting you, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show, adding value out there because it makes a difference. You know, as your time is, I'm sure, very valuable. And to give that to the audience and to share your experience, answer the question, I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you, my man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the time and having me yeah. on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, Jeremy. Take care, buddy.